Mark Dolder, one of my uh, colleagues at Newsroom, he said, you've got to remember that we're, we're just in, in the response phase now. That will come later. And there's lots of money um, uh, unallocated in this $50 billion to do more later. Well, when's later going to come? There was not a single initiative in the budget um, that directly had anything to do with climate change. Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week, I talk to entrepreneurs, investors, and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. The budget last week was billed as transformational, laying the groundwork for a COVID recovery that would see New Zealand leap ahead of other countries, not just in keeping people employed or in training, but also building infrastructure, the kind we need for that low emissions future we all hope for. So was it? With $30 billion spent on wage subsidies, cash for tourism, investment in infrastructure, housing and training, it had the feel of an old-fashioned labour budget, with the emphasis on soaking up low-skill employment and investing in that favourite trifecta of education, health and housing, plus $73 million for the Phillies. Transformational it was not. There was no change to tax or welfare or investment policy, no universal basic income, little mention of transformational projects such as nationwide 5G or high-speed rail or an EV charging network or regenerative agriculture. Certainly a distinct lack of emphasis on climate change action. Perhaps I'm being a little pessimistic. So to check, I spoke to three experts on their responses to the budget. I started with the journalist Rod Oram. Rod Oram is a business journalist and longtime advocate of the circular economy, a specialist on agribusiness and sustainability. He's got keen he's also got a keen eye on what would count as transformational. Rod, thanks for joining us on this climate business. Oh, Kyoratata, it's very good to see you um, and to talk with you, Vincent. Thank you. I believe that you're joining us actually in between the um, a, a climate summit. Am I right about that? Yes, this is um, day two of a two-day event. Originally, it was going to be a one-day summit, uh, classically, you know, in a big conference hall. Uh, and uh, that, as, so as soon as lockdown started, that got pushed way out into the end of the year. But wonderfully, um, conference brought it back in as an online one. And so we're doing two afternoons instead. Uh, restructured because um, people respond differently online. You can't, um, the presentations need to be shorter, for example, but we're finding ways to make it interactive. So we've got about um, 100 people involved. And um, and what's really important from, um, I think, is that people are prepared to pay for this. So that requires us to be especially good when there's so many free webinars around. Uh, but I think it's really important if we're going to, um, do be able to do things like remote working where we um, have whole different cost structures, i.e. no expensive conference facilities to um, hire, um, that, but we still expect to be able to earn some revenue from them um, to be able to keep them going. So it's all good. 
There's a transformational element in what you've just said, a kind of a, a, a metaphor really for what this budget is or could be. It was signaled as a transformational budget, a reset. Um, to what extent do you think the budget has delivered on that expectation? It's an astonishing reset in one very important sense. So we've moved from um, this very tight fiscal jacket that says, oh, no, we, we can't borrow very much and we can't spend very much and we're going to have to spread, spread our spending terribly thinly uh, like a smear of marmite across you know, the public service to, oh, let's increase public spending by $50 billion and, oh, Debt's going to go from 20% to 53% of uh, GDP. Um, and everybody is relaxed about that because they know it's the right thing to do. They also know that um, we can afford to do it uh, with interest rates around about 1% um, and um, amazing new mechanisms like quantitative easing um, out from the Reserve Bank to be able to create liquidity as well. And so all of a sudden, there's a lot of money in that this budget, which is spread very liberally. It's literally everything from, you know, e-commerce to environment and from disabilities to defense. Um, and um, so it's transformational in that sense. But I have um, two very major worries. The first one is, I don't know that we can spend all that money. Um, last year, the government um, set aside or earmarked another $1.3 billion for mental health, and it's failed to spend it. So with all this money going around, how will the government spend the money? Where will it find the people to teach new skills to all the people who have lost their jobs because of the crisis? Um, where will it find the people to build more houses? Um, and they go, you can go on and on through, through the whole list. Obviously, um, a lot of that money is going to be put to good use by companies that have hit, suffered uh, and will for a while yet. Uh, catastrophic losses of revenue and um, so that money that goes to them in forms of subsidies or other help um, is important um, and those companies will be able to spend that money. So that's the first reservation about will we be able to spend it but then the second question is um, will we be able to spend it wisely? Are we basically just trying to pump up the old system or are we trying to, at some point, transition to a new system? And um, my great fear is that uh, we're absolutely only doing the former. And well, let's look at them uh, subject by subject. So if we look at infrastructure, for instance, there's been quite a commitment previously, but also in this budget to rail, uh, a commitment to uh, new ferries for uh, the in, uh, inter-islander. Um, there's these... Uh, the long set of projects that we know Mark Binns is looking at in terms of shovel-ready uh, that have yet to be revealed. So there are genuine projects there that will require genuine infrastructure investment, people, skills, engineering, and so on. Does that spend not satisfy both requirements for you? It depends what you spend the money on. So, for example, um, in the budget, Kiwi Rail got $400 million to renew its inter-islander infrastructure, both ferries and um, wharfs. So how are they going to do that? Uh, are they just going to buy another um, diesel-powered or you know, a bunker-fuel-powered pair of ferries? Um, or is there genuinely an opportunity here 
to build an electric ferries for the Cook Strait. You know, there's already in Norway and British Columbia and other places, um, they do have electric car ferries. Obviously, it's a bit of a stretch across the um, Cook Strait. That's a, a longer distance, tougher seas often. Um, so there are some huge challenges there. And will those terminals um, in Picton and in Wellington, will they be attractive uh, uh, places or welcoming places? Um, or will they be the rabbit warrens of um, buses, trains, cars, taxis, foot passengers uh, and all the rest that they already are. So it's very much a question about how the money is spent. Um, so the extra money for rails, fine. Um, uh, a lot of it is, uh, some of it is very necessary for track work itself. Um, a good chunk of money is also for more rolling stock. Um, but again, it comes back to, well, what's the motive power going to be? Why isn't the money in that um, uh, rail spend on um, completing the electrification of the main trunk line, for example, in the North Island? Um, and uh, are we just going to keep going with um, um, diesel engines? Uh, I know there's going to be a bit of a refit of the old electric locomotives, um, but but that I, I don't see the money on the rail spend in itself um, being transformational. Um, in transport terms. In housing, there is a commitment to building 8,000 state houses. There's also an uh, increase of the Warmer Kiwi Homes Initiative to reaching 90% of the costs for low-income homes. Again, are you seeing uh, hope there that those houses and that initiative will build in this kind of low emissions, more sustainable uh, construction industry uh, that you would hope for? Uh, no. So uh, we're going to insulate some more homes, fine, but there's still 590,000 homes in New Zealand with substandard um, insulation. And yet that's one of the most obvious ways to get fuel savings and emission savings um, that one can imagine and fantastic return on investment, fantastic payback um, for the government. And when it comes to um, building houses, why do we still have um, appallingly uh, weak energy efficiency standards on our houses? Um, you know, we've got by for generations because we're a, a mild climate uh, and we've often had this idea, well, you know, pull yourself together, put on another jumper, um, uh, without getting really serious about um, energy efficiency in homes. So, yes, to building more homes, but why aren't we building them to um, higher um, energy efficiency standards? There was a, a line uh, that I discovered, uh, well, I didn't, but it was sent to me by a smarter person than me that was talked about the decarbonisation of heating for schools and hospitals. So I'm assuming that implies the transition from coal-fired heating burners to electrification. I, I understand that, that the health sector alone is responsible for something like 3% of emissions for New Zealand. Would, would that kind of transition meet your standards for uh, a transformational exercise? Uh, yes, they would. Um, but again, um, the numbers are limited. Um, th this is not a program that says we are going to stop, we're going to convert from coal-fired powered um, school heated schools and hospitals over X number of years. It's, oh, we'll spend some money on another handful of. 
So it's not a strategic decision. What's made has only been a tactical decision. There are high expectations created around this budget, weren't there? For instance, I, I, I noticed that the timber industry, the forestry industry, have high expectations for creating downstream demand in the form of construct new construction approaches, this wood first policy. Uh, there's high expectations around a, a high-speed train solution for the you know the so-called golden triangle of Tauranga, Hamilton and Auckland. Uh, there was high expectations of a universal basic income. How realistic are those expectations? Are they more like wish lists? I mean, uh, we're living in the context of a highly dramatic public health emergency. How realistic is it? for us to imagine we could handle that health emergency and also make a transition into this low emissions economy, this kind of new economy? Dealing with the pandemic uh, is clearly the most complicated, um, intense issue that a government's had to contend with. I, I mean, I, I, I would... I'm reluctant to use the parallel, um, but you know, if you're at war, that unfolds a good deal more slowly than the um, uh, epi the pandemic has un unfolded. So the government has done a very good job in terms of making decisions um, are without anywhere near enough information, and and in situations which are moving very fast, um, and then um, building on those decisions. It's done that. Um, it's done that very, very well. That's uh, occupied uh, a vast number of people in government, but not all. Um, and but I do accept it's um, asking far too much of um, political leadership uh, and indeed of business leadership, because um, there's obviously parallel um, situations in in the business sector as well to be able to um, work on recovery well first of all on response now on recovery um, but then on rebuild uh, or building anew however uh, I think it's really important to lay down um, some ambitions some tracks that we can then develop over time and I'll give you a very good example of uh, the best framework around I've seen. Uh, Vivid Economics in London, um, aligned with London School of Economics and the Grantham Institute um, and um, the new climate economy people. And indeed, Vivid has done really good work here. Um, they were the people who were hired to um, do work on uh, our um, transition to a low emissions economy by Globe NZ, which is the backbench or party um, committee on climate change or, or grouping on climate change. And then the Productivity Commission then used Vivid um, it, uh, both as a consultant and a modeler in its 2018 uh, report on our transition to a low emissions economy. So um, Vivid has been tracking uh, all of this stimulus that's been announced around the world. And 90% of it um, is going to companies and households and the rest to get them through this tough time. Um, only 11% um, um, is identifiable um, in any way as being an in, uh, uh, a spend that does two things. Uh, it has a um, 
uh, restore and recover role, um, but it also has a rebuild role, um, particularly around um, any kind of definition of climate change or sustainability. Pretty much there's only one country out there where it, um, that's a dominant feature of the stimulus package, and that's South Korea. So in this report out recently, Vivid lays out um, all the policy connections that you can make um, to try to bring these two strands together. And uh, I think that that way of looking at things is very helpful. And I certainly wasn't, it would have been complete madness with the budget to have had some grand plan for, you know, New Zealand, you know, 2050 or whatever. It had been complete nonsense. Um, but the, it was really important, I think, in the budget to lay out some of those core, core crucial connections um, between um, uh, response and reopening and uh, re then recovery and uh, building anew. And your point is you're not seeing those signals? No, not at all. And um, I'll, give you, I'll give you one example. Um, James Shaw, co-leader of the Greens and, uh, and climate change minister, um, yesterday gave a very fulsome welcome to the $1.1 billion that the government is spending on the environment, 11,000 jobs for people to pull weeds um, and knock off pests and uh, uh, root up wilding pines. Uh, deal with eroding riverbanks and um, creating some mini wetlands. Don't forget and, the wallabies. Yeah, yeah. Get rid of the wallabies. Um, and uh, he said that this was the start of, you know, um, I won't try and paraphrase what he said, but he was very fulsome on it. When pushed on it um, by um, uh, Mark Dolder, one of my uh, colleagues at newsroom he said you've got to remember that we're we're just in in the response phase now that will come later and there's lots of money um uh, unallocated in this 50 billion dollars to do more later well when's later going to come Th there was not a single initiative in the budget um that directly had anything to do with climate change, that there are some things that will be slightly beneficial, like some more um, home insulation, um, but not strategically, um, not at scale. And um, I think that um, um, this was a government, this was a prime minister who said that climate change was the defining issue of our generation, our nuclear free moment. I think the COVID-19 um, crisis has become the defining um, issue for uh, in in her generation, and I appreciate that because the pressure for all of us, but the pressure on her is intense as it is on all of us, uh, all of society, to respond um, in effective ways to COVID. Um, but we we can't in that process um, lose track of. Um, actually fundamentally bigger issues of which climate change is one there is not sorry it's an old line that's going around there isn't a vaccine for climate change a good example of the requirement for a transition is the tourism sector fundamental pivot is required from international to domestic which probably satisfies the short term or at least goes some way to to address this short-term, what did you call it, the the recovery phase? 
What opportunities exist beyond the recovery phase, though, to remake an industry that perhaps embeds less carbon emissions in the transport experience of tourism, of which it's you know such a fundamental part of the tourism, and we have to fly here for a start. Transport, because we've got effectively two years to reimagine, how do we, how would we go about rebuilding a tourism business, a tourism industry that has a low emissions profile? Um, I've long been arguing that we should um, move as rapidly as we can towards voluntary carbon neutral tourism. And then in due course, as that um, gained acceptance and understanding, making it mandatory. And by that, I mean that it's very straightforward. Um, if we want to have tourists, they're going to have to come by plane, except the few that arrive by cruise ships. And um, if they come by plane for a long time yet to come, fossil fuels will be involved. So therefore, um, the international aviation sector had already committed from 2020. I don't know whether this will still hold true now that um, you've been so wiped out by the virus, is that um, they were going to offset all of their increase in emissions from the 2020 base and build that into airfares. Um, I hope that still happens. But the idea that um, good quality offsets, which have a genuine ecological purpose um, and in no way or double, count, double counting or, or are um, fraudulent in any kind of way, they have a legitimate role to play. So if we started on a voluntary basis of international tourists um, offsetting the emissions for their flight at a obviously carbon prices have gone up, but around about 20 or $25 a tonne, um, round trip um, from the UK economy class um, was only about $250 New Zealand, mm. which was only two thirds of the UK government's um, uh, departure tax for long haul international flights. So, so carbon offsetting would be, would be one. Um, is there a different way of doing tourism, for instance, you know, reducing numbers? So we've we've had high volume, low value. Is this the moment to transition to a much more high value, low volume tourism sector? Um, yes, there is. And there's a connection between the two. So if you want low volume, they're still going to have to come on planes. So they're still going to have to do offsets. So therefore, you want to encourage people to stay longer and have a far deeper and more meaningful relationship um, with this place and um, the land, the water, the people. Um, so you start by connecting them and the money they've paid on their offset with some sort of ecological restoration project in New Zealand that that money has gone into, um, obviously one with direct climate change benefits. Um, and um, you uh, set up some kind of um, sort of carbon passport, if you like, where you're engaging them with their um, carbon footprint while they're in the country so they can see how they can manage that as effectively as possible. But um, and, and then in that process, as they stay longer, become more engaged rather than just flitting around from you know, one piece of entertainment to another. Um, that would be a very different kind of tourism. 
So now we've got the COVID crisis, and this is a brilliant time to do it because uh, whilst we had a lot of income from um, overseas tourists, we had a lot of expenditure um, from New Zealanders going abroad. There was something like um, 3 million domestic arrivals back in New Zealand last year. Now, some of those are people coming back many times. Um, um, and now those people aren't going. In due course, they'll be able to go to Australia, but they aren't going. So how would the tourism industry here be able to attract those uh, very discerning people who would spend lots of money to go overseas to spend more money domestically? Well, again, rather than just flipping, you know, flitting down to Rotorua for a go on the luge, which is perfectly good fun, uh, how would you engage them in Rotorua um, in ways much more interesting um, and rather than a sort of a, a fairly superficial cultural show. So I think the great opportunity here for the tourism industry is to learn how to engage people um, very, very deeply um, and start on um, fellow New Zealanders who in some ways are going to be the hardest sell, you know, oh, we know all about the country, you know, we'll just go to our favourite parts and take the learnings from that in the domestic industry and then build that back out into the international arrivals um, once flights um, are start to pick up again. So th for me, there is, the, the, there is, a, there is a very direct connection um, and we New Zealanders are the test bed for that. Necessity could be the mother of invention in the tourism sector. Survival will be the mother of invention. <laughs> um, Rod, how hopeful are you um, of... Uh, so the budget has been a little disappointing in its transformational nature. How hopeful are you that this remaining $20 billion the, um, that's left in uh, Grant Robertson's back pocket might be the, the transformational bit? Um, I'm, I'm not particularly optimistic for two reasons. Firstly, the my basic setting, if you like, my basic view of the world is that we ain't seen nothing yet with the COVID crisis um, in um, pandemic health terms or in economic terms. Um, I think it's complete nonsense that the IMF is forecasting global GDP in calendar 2020 will only be down 3% and next year it'll rebound 5.8%. It just ain't going to happen. We're going to see wave after wave. Just yesterday, um, the WHO was starting to say, well, actually, maybe we'll never get rid of COVID. So um, I think the, um, uh, the pandemic impact, uh, we're not done with that in New Zealand. We're certainly not done with that in the world. Um, and thus, we're not done with the economic impact. So therefore, I would imagine a, a good chunk of that 20 billion that Grant Robertson's keeping in his back pocket um, is actually going to go on more of the support measures that we've seen so far. And at the same time, the government will still be juggling with that um, so hard that they they won't have created them enough headspace um, to think about the transformational thing. Now, to offer some hope in this, um, my main hope is that um, lots of people 
um, in the work they do um, in their own companies or in their own sectors or, or in their own communities um, get ambitious and um, start to work out in their own small ways how they can be transformational and just make this much more of a grassroots response. So in due course, uh, we can then get um, the big overarching um national picture we also need as well and um i would recommend to people uh as one example of what's on offer in new zealand greenpeace new zealand has done for them a very unusual piece of work because they're normally so issues oriented but they have uh, done recently the um green covid recovery report uh, which looks across many many sectors um, so it, it's far more deeply integrated than anything they've done before and one of the centerpieces for it is um, a proposal for a one billion dollar fund on regenerative agriculture and uh, interestingly there's a big science appendix to that to um, justify why regenerative agriculture is good so that's really really crucial um, to make sure that we do transitions and transformations like that so we're dealing with the underlying systemic issues which are then causing the environmental problems we have rather than just putting people out uh, on the side of hills to pluck wilding pines well let's hope you're right that the grassroots will rise up in fact i'm talking to amanda larson the very next interview uh, oh. in response to uh, measuring the budget against their new Green Deal or the Green New Deal that they put forward. So um, we will come to that shortly. Rod Orham, thank you so much for your time. Where can we follow your ongoing commentary on these matters? Uh, newsroom.co.nz. And um, whilst my column appears on Sundays on the free side of our site, um, it's a very small sum, $29 a month for a personal subscription, actually a whole household. Um, so you can actually read me on Friday and then get all sorts of other um, good material from the um, subscription side of our site. Because in this new media world, it is only reader-funded journalism which is going to survive. It's a little bit like the tourism sector. Rod Orham, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, Vincent. Always great to have a good chat. Thanks. Amanda Larson is the climate and energy campaigner for Greenpeace New Zealand. She's also one of the authors of the Green New Deal, a plan to accelerate New Zealand's progress to a low emissions future. The deal asks that the government invests in things like providing finance and support for home insulation and heat pumps, fast-tracking fencing and planting on farm waterways, and giving a sizable boost for docs to employ a conservation core of people to eradicate pets and plant native trees and restore critical habitats. So given all of that, Amanda, um, I suspect that you're probably quite pleased with the budget because you got all three of those things that I've mentioned. Kia ora, Vincent. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, yeah, it is really great to see those initiatives that we and many others advocated for, um, to see them picked up in the budget. And I definitely applaud the government for that $1.1 billion on environment jobs in particular. Um, but yeah, we, we weren't, you know, we weren't elated with the budget. There are some things lacking um, and there are some things we would like to see the government prioritise with the remaining $20 billion that are still to be spent. 
everyone's got their eyes on that last 20 billion, don't they? Let's just focus on the things you're, you're pleased with. This investment, 1.1 billion into environment or green jobs, whatever it's called, they're, they're sort of broken down. I can um, give a little breakdown here, I think, um, around um, uh, we've got 315 million into pest eradication, 433 on regional projects, 150. 54 on biodiversity projects. What are those projects? Do you know anything about them? Yeah, um, some of these projects have a bit more clarity around them than others. So um, from what I've gathered of what's been released so far, um, the 433 million for new jobs in regional environment projects is um, a lot of it is about freshwater restoration. So um, restoring wetlands, riverbanks and improving fish passage. Um, the 315 million for biosecurity, um, a lot of it is working um, to eradicate pests, including wallabies and wilding pines. Um, and some of that is being allocated to working with iwi to protect North Island forests. And I hope that um, the Rokumara forest is one of the projects in there, um, which has been um, advocated for um, by some of the East Coast iwi and hapu. Um, there's 200 million for dock, which from what I gather looks like predator control, track maintenance, some forest planting, and also hut and visitor center upgrades. And that 154 million for um, enhancing biodiversity on public and private land is a bit unclear, but um, it looks like it's working with farmers on um, projects like planting um, river riverbeds and planting along streams and so on. So, yeah. Um, so does I'm, it I'm, fit your, the, when you say a sizable boost, sizable yeah. is a, um, you know, it's a word. What does it mean? Do, do, does it qualify as sizable in your mind? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's great to see the government working at how to deploy um, jobless people into new jobs quickly while helping to restore threatened ecosystems. So um, it's it's really good to see a project being picked up, which is about um, making conservation ha conservation projects happen quickly. Um, I think the caveat with with all of these things is that you know if you if you have a, a bath that's overflowing before, you know, you need to turn the tap off before mopping the floor or mopping the floor will be useless if you don't turn the tap off, if you want to put it that way. So all of this will be helpful, but we also need to fix the problems upstream, um, a lot of which are the result of industrial agriculture. So one of the projects that we haven't seen that we've been pushing for very strongly um, is support for farmers to transition to regenerative practices. And that's something that we're really um, pushing to see come out of that that 20 billion there was a sense that this budget is very much focused on the short term um, the, uh, the infrastructure projects for instance mentioned are, are all sh typically shovel ready or quite simple in expectation regenerative agriculture is complex it's a long-term difficult exercise what could you have imagined? You know, what, what could a government sensibly do in this context, in this COVID context, around a transition to regenerative agriculture? 
Um, so it's important to remember that, you know, the last think big government initiative around farming was the Kapuni urea plant, which um, provides synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, which has allowed for the intensification of dairy farming in particular in New Zealand. So government investment can really signal the direction of an industry. Um, so the types of projects that we've been um, advocating for are similar in nature. So rather than, you know, a big urea plant, um, we're encouraging the government to invest in um, organic compost um, systems to be able to provide that um, in a readily accessible way for farmers. Um, grants for the first sort of three years of um, agroforestry practices, so being able to plant trees into pastures, um, and also support for accessing seed. Um, so there's a number of different projects that, you know, it. I don't think it is particularly complex. It's just about setting up systems that make it easier for farmers, many of whom already want to switch to um, regenerative practices to be able to pick that up. It's about, you know, where the government is putting, um, you know, what, what, what support the government is providing for what types of industry. Um, so, yeah, I think it's totally feasible and we'd expect to see some support in the next um, infrastructure set of announcements. What else was missing for you in the budget? I'm, I'm thinking, for instance, in the list that you provide in your new Green Deal is a transition for the New Zealand vehicle fleet, right? So transport, uh, I'm struggling to find transport in this budget. Uh, what are you seeing? With transport, um, we did see 1.2 billion for rail and ferries, which is good. Um, it looks like the government is backing rail for lower carbon freight, but um, it really pales in comparison to the 5.3 billion that has already been allocated for roads through the New Zealand upgrade. Um, one of the things that I think is just so obviously missing is government support for people to transition to um, electric vehicles, so an electric charging network, the fee-bait scheme that should have been introduced by now, um, and also big investments in electric buses for public transport, um, in electric uh, trains and light rail. Um, there's so much opportunity and, and we really didn't see much of it in this budget. Do you have expectations that this is a downstream exercise it could be for instance that a, a, a fee bait scheme is a piece of legislation that doesn't necessarily have to be included in a budget what's your hope for um, other mechanisms regulation for instance around emission standards for encouraging this shift to an EV fleet which I think everybody even the motor vehicle industry acknowledges has to happen. Yeah, you're absolutely right. These things don't have to be announced through the budget. Um, and I guess I, I think I'm with you. Like it seems like such a common sense policy to be supporting people to buy vehicles that are and then um, making it a bit harder for people to import really polluting vehicles. But um, it's turned into such a political hot potato, it seems, that it just hasn't um, managed to get through um, Cabinet, which is really unfortunate because I think there's so much public support for it and it's a shame that it's been really politicised. Thinking about those ferries and the investment in rail, uh, by themselves are... Uh, 
opportunities to embed some kind of low emissions technology, for instance, you know, what what could be done with those big ferries that are chugging diesel fumes into the air on a daily basis? What you know, what what kind of technologies could be deployed that might build a low emission, low impact ferry fleet for the Cook Strait? The technology already exists for electric ferries, and I think if if we're looking at upgrading these ferries now, then let's let's look at the latest technology available instead of locking in more high carbon infrastructure. Um, I think that just feels like real common sense as well. Um, I, I, rail, and, and, yeah, go for it. Uh, well, on the rail front, you know, you know, it feels like remedial work, right? There was no aspiration around a fast network uh, joining the, the Golden Triangle of Tauranga, Hamilton and Auckland, which would be an aspiration on transformational kind of project, even if that was signalled. But I, I didn't see any of that kind of language or aspiration in the budget, did you? No, I'm with you. Um, the language I did see was upgrades to locomotives and some track upgrades. So it doesn't sound like really big visionary projects that are about making it easier to move between our major hubs or, you know, replacing air travel through better connected rail travel. Um, it sounds like it's it's mostly about providing some much needed upgrades and allowing for more freight to roll on the rails, which is in itself a good thing. Um, but yeah, it's not as visionary and transformational as maybe we, you know, I think we could have been forgiven for thinking given some of the, um, some of the language that Grant Robertson was using before the budget was announced. The investment in state housing is going to be extensive, 8,000 state houses, 6,000 of which will remain in public ownership, 2,000 transitional. Um, what expectations would you have for those state houses to be the kind of warm, dry, hopefully even passive type housing that we would expect in the 21st century? Yeah, I think you just said it, Vincent, that that's exactly what we would expect. Um, we have this opportunity where we can use all the latest technology to ensure that homes are warm and dry and healthy, which we know is a problem for public health in New Zealand, um, and also kit out those homes with solar panels, with batteries, um, you know, having, having microgrids, having distributed energy generation creates more resilience. Um, it's also, you know, providing affordable energy for people in their homes. Like there's so much opportunity, I think, um, to build homes to the latest standards that keep people healthy and um, provide clean energy. So it would be really disappointing if those 8,000 homes weren't delivering um, on the latest technology. How would we keep the pressure on the government to make sure that it does? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good question. Um, I've been pretty blown away by the amount of public support for um, building back better through this budget. Um, I think a lot of people realize the transformational opportunity of having so many government billions on the table to reboot the economy. Um, I explained like, it's like trying to move an oil tanker, like when it's in 
to shift it. It's been stopped for a while and we can choose to either go down a path of restoration um, and transformation or we can just choose to go down the same old path. Whichever path we choose is going to, you know, cost as much. So we've got a real decision ahead of us. Um, so in terms of being able to influence the government, you know, um, I think this is the moment for all of us to be putting on pressure in terms of petitions um, and, you know, phoning our MPs who are our elected representatives to let them know what we want. Given all that expectation for a transformational opportunity that COVID has given us, we've had this first glimpse now into the government's agenda. They've set out a, you know, some, some pretty big spending expectations that are not going to be, uh, I suppose, diverted from now. It's going to be about execution. Uh, on a scale of kind of one to 10, where, you know, one is incredibly disappointed, 10 is incredibly hopeful, how would you rate this budget as a signal that we are going to have, seize this opportunity for transformational change that is a, a climate-friendly transformation? <laughs> um, gosh, um, I would maybe put us right in the middle at five. I think the government has had some really strong messaging around transformation. And like I said, before the budget was announced, um, Grant Robertson was talking about this incredible opportunity that we had and that we shouldn't squander. And yet looking at what's come out of this budget, I feel like, you know, just uh, policy hasn't matched that kind of vision. And I do get the sense that throughout this government's term, the, the rhetoric has been very strong, but the policy implementation has been very timid. So I think we have a job to do to, to ensure that those 20 billion that are on the table for infrastructure and, um, and new projects have strong environmental bottom lines so that they're not doing harm, but also are setting us on that path to transformation. Um, yeah. Great. Amanda Larson, thanks for joining us on This Climate Business. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. Jenny Cooper QC is President of Lawyers for Climate Action New Zealand. Thank you for joining me, Jenny. You're welcome, Vincent. Good morning. Uh, Jenny, last month your group wrote an open letter to the Prime Minister. In fact, you wrote two letters, but uh, I just want to focus on the second. And you said that, and this is a quote from your letter, the government is under an obligation to use the fiscal stimulus funds to help New Zealand transition to a low emissions and climate resilient economy. We consider that this is not only sound policy, but required of the government as a matter of law. So I guess my question for you is, did you see any evidence yesterday that the government is taking your advice? Well, uh, good question. I mean, not as much as I would have liked, um, but it's a little bit hard to tell, to be honest. Um, you know, there were some good uh, good signals. There were some good bits of rhetoric about uh, this being an opportunity to build back better and um, to hit the reset button. Um, but there wasn't really any clear acknowledgement from the government um, that uh, the emissions impact of these uh, policies is uh, being taken into account and how money is going to be allocated. Um, so while there's definitely some some good things in there, um, obviously the green jobs package and um, various other things, a lot of it is still being left to cabinet decisions. 
uh, about how money is going to be spent. So, and I'm thinking in particular of the infrastructure projects, the shovel-ready projects. Mm. We still don't know what those are going to be, and and so there's still no clear commitment to really apply a serious climate lens to those decisions. When you look at the uh, activities that are going to be the most cl climate sensitive investments what would you have picked would you have picked infrastructure as as the, the most obvious areas where you need to build in an expectation of a low emissions future yes well i think the two key ones for new zealand have to be agriculture and um uh, transport um, are the biggest really and so our transport infrastructure is a really key area if we don't get that right we have no chance of meeting our um, Paris commitments. Um, so some of the analysis I've seen uh, suggests that really in order to remain on a 1.5 degrees pathway, we need to effectively completely decarbonise transport by 2030. Now that requires a massive uh, shift in our transport infrastructure. And although, um, you know, the government is saying that the infrastructure spend is going to be spent in a climate friendly way um we can't afford just to uh, have a few sort of token projects um you know it's going to take more than a couple of bike lanes here and there while we carry on building more roads to achieve that kind of transformation so um so there's not yet really an indication that the government has grasped the full scale of the challenge there and been willing to confront it and similarly on agriculture i know um greenpeace was pushing for a um, regenerative agriculture package um, and is disappointed that we haven't seen that. And so, yeah, I'm not seeing a lot in there that is really um, looking to steer agriculture down a new, more climate-friendly path. The commitment to uh, rail is extensive. So uh, mm. regarding the ferries, the uh, inter-island ferries, are those two areas where they are at least indications uh, that would provide you hope that there is some sort of uh, shift to a, a new technology platform in transport? Well, look, I think the investment in rail and ferries is great. Um, so, yes, I don't want to sound like I'm... Um uh, you know, not everything in the budget is bad by any means. There's a lot of good stuff in there, and, and that's, I think, um, a really good sign. Uh, but we've had decades of underinvestment in rail in this country, and so this is a great start. But I, um, well, I'm not a rail expert. I don't know how far that money is likely to go, but I don't think that is um, certainly not on its own going to achieve the kind of uh, transformation we need. But but I agree, it's, it's definitely a step in the right direction and a really positive one. There's certainly a... a overall feeling from the budget from lots of people and I think of Paul Blair for instance who's the head of infrastructure New Zealand describing the investments so far in low complexity short-term projects which you'd understand from a jobs point of view would soak up employment but your point is where's the uh, I suppose the vision for investing in technologies that's going to embed low emissions technology. I mean, I, I just want to quote something back to you, which I think is very sensible. You say in that letter, New Zealand has already been slow to take up meaningful steps to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, at a time when emissions should have been cut, between 1990 and 2016, our gross CO2 equivalent emissions have increased by 20%. So, you know, not only do we have to make up for lost ground, but um, if we're building in 
uh, low expectation of um, emissions, we we are potentially saddling our next generation with a, a sort of a carbon debt. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, unlike um, fiscal debt, uh, carbon debt is is real. Um, we're, we're going to be paying for it. We can't put it off. Uh, it's going to have an impact on our lives and our well-being. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's very, very serious. No, I completely agree. And I, I think that is I, – I mean, I think the government obviously has is, is faced a, you know, extraordinarily challenging time. Um, I think it's handled the crisis um, overall really well. But we can't afford to lose sight of the bigger crisis, which is, you know, the climate situation. And we can't afford to focus on the short term and put off those um, big decisions um, because, you know, the, the, the climate change is here now and it's only going to accelerate and get worse. And the longer we um, delay making the serious choices we need to make to, to cut emissions, the harder it's going to be, the more um, burden we are placing on on future generations or, or even ourselves in the next um, couple of decades. So I, I completely agree with that. And, you know, while it's encouraging to see um, climate-friendly uh, rhetoric and to see various ministers saying, well, yes, we are going to be taking climate into account when we make these um, spending decisions, we are going to be looking at these projects, I really feel that still, um, you know, the government is simply not uh, being open enough or giving enough leadership um, about the scale of issue that climate change is, the urgency of it, and what really needs to be done. I, I feel it's all very much gently, gently, softly, softly. Um, we'll do a little bit and, you know, we'll worry about it later. And we just can't afford to do that anymore. You say you're not an expert in rail, but you are a lawyer. In fact, you're a QC, so you know you don't get more expert than that. I wouldn't think. Uh, in your quote, in the quote I wrote, I read earlier in the letter, there's a little sting in the tail. You say not only is it would it be sound policy, but it's required of the government as a matter of law. What legal recourse are you thinking there? I mean, there's a sort of an implied threat there about what kind of legal ramifications are sitting there for the government if they don't follow a low emissions path in their investment strategy? Yeah, well, look, I think this is, I mean, <laughs> what we're, we don't, not certainly don't intend it to be a threat. What we'd really like is to see the government make good decisions and to follow its legal obligations. Um, so that's the reason for the letter to, to sort of say, look, be aware that when you make these decisions, you you actually have to take these things into account. And so, in terms of the um, those you know where those obligations come from, um, they really, they come from a, a number of sources. Um, the first and most obvious is our domestic law. So, in the Climate Change Response Act, we now have the uh, 2050 zero carbon target, and um, this the act recognises. Um, New Zealand's obligation to comply with its obligations under the Paris Agreement as part of domestic law. So while the Act provides that there's no remedy other than a de declaration for failure to meet the 2050 target, that doesn't mean the government can just ignore it. The government has to comply with New Zealand's domestic law. And so if it's making a decision which has the potential to materially affect our emissions, 
we say as a matter of law, that decision needs to be taken in a way that is consistent with the Climate Change Response Act passed by Parliament. And then if it's not, the court has the ability to step in and say that decision is unlawful and can be set aside. I mean, you refer to a case in the Netherlands where the Supreme Court of the Netherlands has taken the government to task for uh, something. I don't know what, but tell us about that case. I mean, I, you know, yeah. I realise we're, we're constrained on time, so um, I'm sure you'll be able to summarise it quickly for us. All right. Yes, no, well, the agenda case is fascinating. So that was a case brought by a Dutch um, community group based on the right to life under the um, European Union um, sorry, not the European Union, the European Convention on Human Rights. And what they said was the Dutch government has an obligation under that convention to uphold uh, everybody's right to life, and that required it to take steps to avoid the foreseeable risk of loss of life as a result of um, climate change. Uh, so that's been right through the court system up to the Supreme Court in the Netherlands, and at every stage the courts have agreed uh, with agenda that the government does have that obligation and they've gone as far as to make orders requiring the Dutch government to not make much deeper emissions cuts uh, proposing. Yeah. Now, and to what extent does that apply across jurisdictions? I mean, Netherlands is a long way from here and it's, um, and it's in a different um, whole you know, legal jurisdiction. To, to what extent would that apply in New Zealand? Sure. Yeah, it is different. What What is... So there are some differences, but there are also some similarities. So New Zealand obviously recognises the right to life. That's We've both signed up to the same you know, international convention, mm -hmm. but also in the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act, we have the right to life. So the government, again, is bound to act in a way that is consistent with the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act. So potentially there is, uh, there is a possibility for a similar action to be brought here. The crucial difference here would be in the remedies. So uh, under New Zealand law, the court doesn't have um, the power to uh, override acts of parliament. Um, and I think it would be it would be unprecedented for a New Zealand court to tell uh, the New Zealand government what its policy should be and what steps it should take to cut emissions. I can't imagine that happening here. But what I can imagine happening here would be the New Zealand courts saying to the government, uh, you have failed to adequately take this into account in your decision making and your decision does not is therefore unlawful and you need to go back and reevaluate it taking proper account of the impact on the right to life and so it, it, very much what happened in the Thompson case in New Zealand where um, the Minister for Climate Change at the time failed to review New Zealand's NDC under the Paris nationally determined contribution under the Paris Agreement to reflect the latest IPCC reporting. And the court said there was a legal obligation to do that. You didn't do it. Therefore, your failure uh, was unlawful. And the only reason the court didn't order the minister to um, go back and review uh, the NDC in that situation was because there'd been an election and a change of government. Mm. So there's, there's a potential here for the courts to... Um, Certainly, to uh, require government to relook at some of its decisions. Jenny, you are a successful lawyer, and I know that your group uh, is made up of high-profile and successful lawyers. Why are you doing this? Why does it matter to you? Well, um, if I don't do it, who else is going to do it? I mean, I think we all have a responsibility to do what we can, and um, I've been sort of, I suppose, sitting on the sidelines my entire adult life, hoping somebody was going to 
fix this problem. And I know lots of people have tried really hard, but it hasn't been fixed yet. And so I, I really felt it was incumbent on me to try and do what I could. And so I've tried to think about where my, um, what I can bring to the discussion. And so that's why we're trying to focus on the law, try and get more lawyers involved because, you know, those are the people I know and speak to and um, can hopefully influence. And I know that, and my friends and colleagues who, who have started this organization with me feel the same way. We feel a very deep sense of responsibility to try and uh, fix this. You know, most of the damage has occurred during our lifetimes. So yeah. we all feel very responsible and it's not good enough to say it's the next generation's problem to fix um you know we've benefited from the last sort of 40 years of you know economics prevailing over the environment and it's time for us to give back i think mm, great if people want to help if we have some lawyers listening or other people want to get hold of you what how do they do that is there a website uh, yes, there is. Um, it's www.lawyersforclimateaction.nz. It doesn't um, have a very sexy acronym, I must say. No, I know. <laughs> right. I know. We, we, we tried to come up with a sexier name and a better acronym, but um, in the end, we, we, we didn't want that to hold us up. We just needed to get on with it. So yeah. we, <laughs> we were good enough. <laughs> That's great. Um, uh, Jenny, thanks for joining us on this climate business and all the best with uh, with the actions you're taking. Looking forward to letter three. Yes, there will be one, I'm sure. Thank you very much, Vincent. It's great to talk. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the programme. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.